Okay, let's just stand. Let's just fix our hearts on him for a moment. Just open your hearts to him. Fix your eyes on him. You're the name above all names. You are worthy of all praise. And my heart will sing how great is our God. Let's sing that again. You're the name above all names. You are worthy of all praise. And my heart will sing how great is our God. That's what we sing from our hearts, God. How great you are. Our city doesn't think that, but we think that. We think you are incredible. And God, thank you that you are here just now. I thank you you have a plan. I thank you you are very much working. God, we ask that today in your presence, people will experience you. People will grow in their faith in you. You will build people up. You will encourage us. You will strengthen us. And you will lead us into the strong and great future you have for each one. We worship you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's hear it for God. He's amazing. For those who are visiting today, we're we're in a series looking at the book of Psalms. And we're going to continue on that right till uh, the beginning of December. Uh, Let let me start with a quote from uh, Max Licado. And he tells a traumatic tale, a chapter in the life of a parakeet named Chippy. It began when the bird's owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum cleaner. She was almost finished when the phone rang and she turned around to answer and before she knew it, Chippy was gone. In a panic, she ripped open the vacuum bag and there was Chippy, covered in dirt and gasping for air. She carried him to the bathroom and rinsed him off under the tap. Looking at this dripping, mini mass of poultry, it dawned on the owner that Chippy was cold and wet, so she reached out for the hairdryer. A few days later, a friend asked Chippy's owner how the little parakeet was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. (laughs) No kidding. Sometimes life is like that. Life can do that to us, can't it? We feel sucked up, washed out, blown away by one struggle after another, and our song is gone. So how do you keep singing in tough times? How do you keep the song alive in your soul when everything else around you is crazy? Because that's what's going to get you through. So we're going to look at a psalm today, and there's debate about who wrote this psalm. I think it was David, and some other scholars think it was David. I'm not a scholar, but some scholars think it was David, and me too. This is in Psalm 84, and it goes like this. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, that really helps us, doesn't it? That's great. A psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself that she may, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Say the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, May my, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Selah was just a moment where like the electric guitarist would go off and do a solo in the song. I think. The scholars didn't say that. Behold our shields, O gods. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your course is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord's God is a sun and shields. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk, who walks uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. It's amazing. Wow, it's so full of stuff. I, I, I'm, I think we're going to struggle to get through it all, but we're going to try our best. So here's the plan. We're just going to go one verse at a time through it. And I think it's got, it contains truths that will really seriously help you in life and in your faith. So let's just go through it. It's, before going into verse 1, it gives us a little introduction to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, when it says a psalm of the sons of Korah, it doesn't mean that they wrote the psalm. It, was, it either means they wrote the psalm or it can also mean that it was written for them to sing because the sons of Korah were the worship leaders in the temple courts or in the temple areas. So it didn't necessarily mean that it was written by the sons of Korah. Um, Calvin, Spurgeon, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones believe this was a psalm of David's, specifically as he was going through the period in the end of his life when he was in the run from his son Absalom. So the you probably, some of you who've read the Old Testament, you know the account. David's now in his 60s. He's gone through, I mean, he's faced many challenges, David, right through his life. But here he's in his 60s. And in his 60s, his own son has, is, 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 a, is a rebel. His son kills one of his brothers. So David's heartbroken. And, and Absalom runs for his life. And then eventually David sends for him and forgives him and brings him back to Jerusalem, where he lives in Jerusalem, and uh, what Absalom does, having been forgiven by his father for the terrible crime he committed, Absalom then raises up basically a mutiny against his own dad, having been forgiven by his dad. And uh, he tries to take over the kingdom. And he gets an army behind him, and Absalom marches into Jerusalem, and David has to leave Jerusalem, concerned for his own life, with his own people, and he runs off into the desert on the run for his life, David's now 61 years old. It's not what he needs. I mean, he's had all that kind of stuff happening in his younger years. Now he's in his 61, 
and he's in the run for his life again. That's where they think this psalm is written. So bear that in mind. Okay, verse 1, it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. How lovely is your dwelling place. Now, I like my house. I like my house. God likes his house. God likes living where he dwells. You know, I, I totally love my house. That's why I live there. And God totally loves his house. That's why he chooses to live there. How lovely is God's dwelling place. And so here's the psalmist talking about where God lives. And he says, it's an amazing place. You need to know God's been house hunting. He's been house hunting since actually right through the Bible. That's part of the story of the Bible. Right from the book of Genesis at the very beginning, right through to Revelation, God's house hunting. And in Genesis, you see him house hunting. And, and what, what it says in Genesis, way back in Genesis 1, 27, 28, it says, God created man in his own image. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And way back at the beginning of creation, God made mankind, men and women, in the image of God. And he said to them, now I want you to fill the earth. So what was God's plan? Well, from the very beginning, God's plan was that people reflecting his image, would fill this earth and bring his rule and his subjection and his dominion. That was the plan. Now, we know how it went wrong. We know sin came into the world, and it looked like it scuppered the plan. But God's never given up on that same plan, that he will have a people reflecting his image, filling this earth. So a wee bit further on in Genesis, and I'm skipping over many verses here, coming to Genesis 12, we see him finding a man called Abram. And he says to Abram, Genesis 12, 2 and 3, he says, I will make you into a great nation. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So again, what's he looking for? He's looking for a place to dwell. He's looking for a people who are reflecting his image and his glory, filling this earth and bringing blessing to the whole earth. He's looking for a place to be. It's always been his plan. He's looking for people reflecting his image who are filling this earth. And then skipping ahead to 2 Samuel 7, 13, he's, God speaks to David and he says about David's offspring, he says, you're going to have, a, you're gonna have uh, sons who will rule on the, on the throne. He promised David a lineage of kings. And he says, one of your sons, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And David, sure enough, through the history of Israel, had many kings on the thrones. But eventually, Jesus Christ born in the family line of David's, arrived. And Jesus is the one to build a house for God. And his kingdom will last forever. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. Now, the word church means assembly. It's the Greek word ekklesia, assembly, gathering. I will build my gathering. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see, this has been God's intention from the very beginning, that a people reflecting God's glory and God's image will fill this whole earth and be a place where God can dwell and a place from which his blessing can touch everywhere. It's always been God's plan. Satan has tried to disrupt the plan. Sin has on numerous occasions disrupted the plan. Human beings have gotten in the way umpteen times, but God's agenda is still on track. God's still looking for a place to dwell. He's house hunting in Ephesians chapter 2, Sammy read it earlier, verse 22, it says, you too, speaking to the church, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives 
by his Spirit. So the dwelling of God has changed shape and form right through the generations. And in the Old Testament, we see that he had a temple in which he dwelt. In the New Testament, he doesn't have a temple for his people. He has a people for his temple. We are the dwelling place of God. God dwells among us. We are that people that God was searching out from the very beginning, a people reflecting his image that fill the earth and bring his kingdom. It's always been the case. We, being his people, represented here as Destiny Church, but also South Leith Baptist, and also P's and G's, and also, you know, all across this city and all across the nations of the world, different peoples, different tribes and nations and age groups and cultures and social classes, reflecting the glory of God, redeemed by his great love, seeing a place where God can dwell on earth and spreading his kingdom. That's always been the agenda of God. Now, when the Bible here talks about how lovely is your dwelling place, you know, we see the word interchange several times through the psalm. Sometimes it calls the dwelling place the house of the Lord. Sometimes it calls it the temple. Sometimes it calls it Zion. But when we're talking about that, we're always talking about the same thing. A dwelling place of God on earth. And we know today, that's his people. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. I really believe in the local church. I seriously believe in the local church. That's why I gave up everything to start this. I really believe in the local church. Bill Hybels, who leads a large church in, in Chicago, said this, that the church is the hope of the world. I agree. You see, there's nothing that will transform society more than a live, Bible-based, spirit-filled, disciple-making, poor-loving, God-glorifying churches. Nothing. And it, doesn't, it, we bring, it brings transformation in the now. It, it's destined to bring transformations in communities, just like salt preserves meat, so also the church is to be salt in the earth preserving and transforming communities. We are barely touching the surface of God's destiny for us. Barely. Just scratching. We've, I feel like we, literally we've just got started. We are hardly even beginning compared to where God's going to take us. And you see, God's intention is that we not only, in the church, it not only brings transformation in the now, and we're starting to see it a little bit, but there's more. But it also brings transformation in the eternal there's nothing will change the eternal more than the church of Jesus Christ. We're the vessel that God uses. What's God's intention for the church? How, how big is he thinking when it comes to church? I mean, there's umpteen verses we could choose. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Here's an example. Now it will come about in the last days. When's that? That's now. These are the last days. Sorry if you thought these were the first days. But days are winding up, and it's, it's all right, don't worry. It's just uh, it'll be the resurrection. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Don't worry, don't worry. But these are the last days according to the Bible. And, and it says, in the last days, that's this era in which we're living, the mountain of the house of the Lord. So when it's talking about the house of the Lord, it's talking about what? The church, us. We are the dwelling of God. It describes us like a mountain. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So what's your expectation? What's my expectation for church? My expectation for church is that, that the biggest thing in every city will be his people. 
the most influential thing in every city will be his people. Now, I understand the way is broad and the way is narrow. I understand that. Yeah, sure. I'm just saying that you won't be able to miss us. I'm saying that like a mountain on the horizon, you will not be able to miss the impact and influence of the church of Jesus Christ in these last days. So we're going somewhere, and it's exciting. And that's the dream, and that's what we're holding out for. Start small, gets big. We are small, we are tiny, but it's going big. That's what God intends. Ephesians 1.22, same thing. People reflecting his image, filling the earth. Ephesians 1.22 and 23. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Say, all in all. It's no corner of the city. There's no aspect of society that won't be touched. That's God's intention. That's God's dream for the church. So when David's or the psalmist, whoever the psalmist is, says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts. We're talking about a God who's found a house to dwell in. In the Old Testament, it was a temple in Jerusalem. In the New Testament, it's a people, the people of God. It's always been intention to have a people among which he dwells and through which he influences the whole world. So you have every right to think really big and dream big because God is actively building that on the earth today. So verse 2 says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Notice here, there's two things going on in that verse. It says, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. But then the bit before it says, my soul longs and faints for the courts of God. Notice the psalmist doesn't separate his passion for God and the passion for his house. You notice that? That it almost goes hand in hand, that a passion for God and a passion for church should go hand in hands. You see, when you spend time with someone in relationship, you start to love the things they love. If you know me well, you will probably care deeply for my wife. If you know me and love me truly, you will have deep respect and love for my wife. You'll say, how's Angie doing these days? Why? Because you care for me. You know, I wouldn't get on very well with you if you said, Pete, you're great. I don't have any time for your wife, but you're just brilliant. Right? I would not get on well with you. But you see, God views his church, his people, as his bride. They are so precious in his sight. And it upsets me, it grieves me greatly to see people who call themselves believers rejecting what God hasn't rejected, the church. You know, Jesus died to save you. He died on the cross to save you. But he also died on the cross to save the church. So will he ever reject you? No. Will he ever reject his church? No. So why do you? Or why does... You, you don't. You're here. I understand. You're, you're the goodies. I'm talking about all those... Yeah, it, it, he will not reject his church. So don't reject what God has not rejected. Don't leave what God said he would never leave. Don't walk away from what God said he would never walk away from. Don't pull down what Jesus said he would build up. So the psalmist loves the temple courts. Why? He doesn't just love it because, oh, you know, a nice building. In fact, so if the psalmist was indeed David's, the temple, the house of the Lord for David was just a ramshackle tent. That's all it was in David's day. They didn't, this is before Solomon's temple had been properly built. It was just like a, a makeshift tent 
with an Ark of the Covenant in the middle of it, and there was 24-7 worship going on. You know, so it wasn't like such great architecture. That's why I love it. That wasn't what he loved about it. It was the presence of God in that place that he loved. That was what made it special. So he loves the temple courts because God is there. Now, in the next generation, Solomon, David's son, built a magnificent temple. It was a magnificent and glorious temple. But again, the psalmist didn't love the temple courts because it was beautiful architecture. They loved it because it's God. God was there. And this is the key to you finding satisfaction in the local church. This is the key. If you spend your time focusing on secondary issues, oh, when that film clip came on, it came on too loud. (laughs) Or, they serve rubbish coffee here. (laughs) Not anymore, because Jane's in the team. (laughs) Or, all the musicians have Apple Macs, and I like PC. Well, first of all, you're so not welcome in our church. But also just, you're focusing on secondary issues. You're focusing on secondary issues. You're missing the whole point. And how many people know, I've just been silly there, right? I've just been having a laugh with you. But you know there are other things that niggle you. Don't like how they do this. Don't like how that happens. Don't like, right, okay. And some things will change. But you know what? When you focus on the secondary issues you will become utterly dissatisfied in any church. Not just this one. But when you come into the house of God and the reason you love the church is because God's there, I can assure you, you will never be dissatisfied because worshipers always meet God. So I I encourage you, I urge you, be a worshiping people. Don't just sing songs and go through motions, but come with hearts prepared to worship God when we gather. Because when we gather, something special happens. You can sit and sing songs in your house, and that's special. But see, when you gather with God's people, this motley crew, God comes. It's very special. So I don't just love church because, oh, cool building, nice, you know, lights, whatever. I think, wow, God's here, and that changes everything. That's the key to your satisfaction. It's what he says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. He puts the two together. Now, I remember that because I grew up in a, in a little church in Glasgow. And it, I, I, I don't mean to be cheeky, but it was pretty dull. It really was quite dull. And it wasn't exciting and it wasn't funky. And it was pretty staid and everyone dressed very formal. And everyone, the people weren't just being human. It was just quite strange. Now, I remember going there, then I became a believer when I was 15. I came alive. I, I had this encounter with God. And I pray, maybe tonight, or what time is it? This afternoon, maybe some of you haven't had an encounter with God yet. So, why not today? Why not you have an encounter with God? And when I was 15, I had this encounter with God, and I remember the next Sunday going back to the exact same church, but it was like I had different glasses on. It still looked a bit dreary, and the minister still sounded the same monotone voice, and all that stuff. But you know what? I start. I loved what he said. And man, those hymns, those old school hymns. Whoa! I'm singing about stuff I've experienced. I'm singing to a God who's my Father. Honestly, it took on a new level for me. Now, it wasn't my preferred style of service, but I tell you what, I got a lot from it. 
I stayed in that church for four years until I was a student, and then I joined what is now Destiny Glasgow. And sure, that was more my style, absolutely. But I didn't just jump ship because it wasn't my style, because I found great satisfaction and joy, and I would still be there if God had told me to stay there. I found great satisfaction and joy in God among God's people. Style, secondary issues will never give you the sticking power in any church, whether it's this one or any other church. It has to be God that you gather for. You know, and, and do you know what? You know what? I, because God is so great, then I say, well, let's make the building great and let's make the sound better and let's make the PA stuff cool and let's, let's do good coffee and design the place nice. Because God's great, let's do all that stuff. But that's the secondary stuff. Verse 3 says, Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallows nest for her, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. It says, the birds, the swallow and the sparrow has found a little place to live. Now, they're uninvited guests in the temple courts in David's or Solomon's day. They were uninvited guests, but they find a place to dwell. They made a dwelling in God's dwelling. They put their roots down where God had put his roots down. You know, that's what we've got to do. Put your roots down where God's put his roots down. Don't be one of those people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church. It's a contradiction. We are the church. I'll say it again. I quoted Tim Keller a few weeks ago. Let me say it again. Uh, He said that you can technically be a Christian by not going to church. And not, sorry, and not go to church. But he said, you cannot live the Christian life and not go to church. Because part of the Christian life is God will shape you and change you and transform you by being in this community of God's people. But see, this bird put this bird's roots down where God had put his roots down. So I encourage you people, put your roots down in the house of God because God's put his roots down in the house of God. Now notice it says about the bird, it says uh, that the, the young, where they made a nest for themselves, laid their young at your altars. It says altars, to, plural. Now it's interesting it says that because this actually is the key for us experiencing the presence of God, the altars of God. In the temple courts, there were two altars. Uh, There was one altar, which was the altar of sacrifice. And then there was the altar of incense, which was as you progress further in. And the order is important. It had to be the altar of sacrifice first, and then the altar of incense. Now, how does that have any bearing on your life this morning or this afternoon in Leith? It has everything to do with your life. It has everything to do with your ability to connect with God or otherwise. Everything. You see, the altar that you, if you were to approach God in the temple, the first place you would come to is the altar of sacrifice. Because why? Because blood needed to be shed because you and I are sinners. And how could we ever expect to come before a holy God with sin in our lives unless the blood was shed to cleanse us from our sin? You need to understand that, you see, if you're in financial debt, we could clear that debt by giving you money. But if you're in moral debt, no money can clear that debt. Only bloods can clear moral debt. 
So when blood sacrifices happened in the Old Testament, that let you just know real clearly, we're sinners. We need cleansed before we can come in the presence of God. If, you, if every time you sinned, you had to sacrifice an animal, it make you really think twice, especially if you're an animal lover. I mean, Jordan would have no animals left. He'd have, he'd have acres of land just to, just to cater for a week. He would, and that's Jordan, but you know the rest of you, you know, okay? You, you'd think twice, but blood had to be shed for the sin to be dealt with. Now, the truth is, the great news is, is the blood was shed for us on the cross 2,000 years ago, one sacrifice for all. When Jesus hung and died on the cross, that wasn't an accident. That was the design of God to take away the sin of the world. Not multiple sacrifices, one sacrifice for all people. God in the flesh paid the price for you personally. What love! And don't neglect that. Don't ignore that. Embrace that. That is your lifeline. So Jesus died on the cross to take away your sin. Apparently in 1927, there was a man called Asibi, and he was, from, he was a West African native. And he came down with yellow fever. Many of his colleagues and friends had died of yellow fever. But amazingly, he survived. There was something in Absini's blood that meant that he was immune to yellow fever. So the doctors developed, using his blood, developed an antibody that literally saved the lives of millions of people who would have previously died from yellow fever. Each dose of the vaccine had within it and can be traced back to Absini's original blood sample. One man's blood saved the lives of millions. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, the price that was paid, the blood that was shed, literally means that your sins can be removed for all eternity. That's the first altar. And without Jesus, you have no hope of meeting God. It's not like we say Jesus is the only way because we want to be obnoxious. We're saying it because it's a, it's a fact. There's no other way. There is, there's literally no other way. Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way. So that's the first altar. And the second altar was the altar of incense. What was that? It represented their prayers. So now that your, your sin's taken away, you come into this place of relationship with God where you can now encounter him. That's why the psalmist says, my king and my God. He doesn't say king and God. He's not just a foreign deity, like some distant being. He's my king and he's my God. And this psalmist is now in relationship with him. Just a tip, by the way, if you want to have healthy prayer lives, don't focus on prayer, focus on God. Because if you focus on prayer, you might think, man, I've got to pray for an hour. Boy, oh boy. If you focus on God, you'll suddenly run out of time. And then it says in verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Say, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. You see, there's a road map in everyone's heart. There's a destination planned in everyone's soul. It's the place you really want to go. Where is that place for you? There's a highway in your heart. It's the route that you're choosing in life. What highway have you chosen? What's the agenda that you're living by? What difference does it make? So if you've got, a, if, if you like the psalmist here has got 
a harp that in it is the highway to Zion. What difference does that actually make in your life and to those around you? That's where it goes on in verse 6. It says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Now, Baca means tears, weeping, sighing, sorrow. And it's a valley. The valley represents a low place. So it's saying that when these people who have got the highway of Zion, remember what, what does Zion speak about? It speaks about church. It speaks about God's people. It speaks about God's plan A to have a people among which he can dwell. If people have got God's agenda as their agenda, they're going to walk into this place called the Valley of Baca. I don't even know if it's a literal place or not, or if it's just symbolic, but it's a place of lowness, a place where there's weeping and sorrow. And what will happen? It says they will cause it to be a place of springs. You see, just because you've got God's agenda in your soul doesn't mean you're not going to go through the Valley of Baca. In fact, sometimes the very fact that you've got God's agenda in your soul means you might be more likely to go through the Valley of Baca. Because when I read my Bible, I find a Daniel. And if it hadn't been for the fact that he had the highway of Zion in his heart, he wouldn't have had to go in the lion's den. Now, God delivered him, but his faith got him into trouble. His big agenda for God got him into trouble. He could have had an easier life without it. And right through the Bible, you see Nehemiah. The pain, just because he took up God's agenda. He could have had an easy, cushy life in a high-paid position in a foreign land. But instead, he chose to let the highway of Zion be in his soul. And then you see people like Paul, the apostle. I mean, he was a hero in the Jewish nation. And yet, he let the highway of Zion be in his soul. He had an agenda, which was God's agenda. And he decided he wasn't going to live for self, but rather for the purpose of God to have a people on the earth that would make a difference. And it ended up with him being beheaded. You have many people through the Bible who lived this way. Elijah was another. Jesus himself. The highway of Zion was in Jesus' heart. The reason Jesus Christ came was so that God could have a people. I hope you're part of his people. God could have a people among which he could dwell the reason Jesus came was that was, his, that was the highway of Zion in Jesus' heart. And that led him to the valley of Bacar as he died on that cross and went through those incredible sorrows to ransom us. Apparently, it says, as we, with the highway of Zion in our souls, go into a place of sorrow, that you're going to make it a place of springs. <clears throat> There's a story of a, an old donkey. And the old donkey fell down a well. And at the bottom of this 40-foot well, the farmer who loved the donkey didn't know what to do with this old donkey. He thought, it's a goner. But the donkey's down there wanting to get out, but it couldn't get out, and there's no way. So he decided the best thing he could do was just bury it alive and just to, just to end its life. So he started shoveling earth over onto this donkey, and the donkey's down there, and the first bit of earth lands on him, and he thinks, no, this is, this is what I feared. You know, everyone told me I was a loser. Now it's confirmed. I'm going to die down here. They're going to bury me alive. But then something rose inside that donkey's heart. And he decided, no, I'm going to shake this off and stand on the muck. And as the shovels came, instead of burying the donkey, he just kept shaking it off and 
standing on the mark until one moment came where the donkey walked out of the well. But you see, the issue is that sometimes the things that try to get you down in life, the valley of Baca that want to ruin you, as you've got the agenda of God in your heart, it gives you an optimism. It gives you a positivity. It gives you an ability to rise to the top. Why? Because you've got this great thing called hope. Because God has fueled something in your heart. You have a vision. Because actually, sometimes what gets you through the tough time is the dream that's lying ahead. And if you're just ambling through life with no dream, then you're going to get hit those challenges and you're going to get stuck. They might bury you. But then it also says, so that's our part. When it says they will make it springs, it says they will make it springs. What does that mean? It means that these people with the highway of Zion in their hearts, they're going to change their environment because of who they are and the vision they're carrying. But also it says that the early rain also covers it with pools. Now, that doesn't sound like them. That sounds like God's now doing something. And here's the truth. When God sees someone who has got the highway of Zion in their hearts, here's someone who's not just living for their own agenda. They've captured the heart of God for their generation. And they're living for God's agenda. And you know what God does? As they're going through those tough places, God reigns on all those around them. Not only do they cause wells to spring up, God does something around them. And here's the thing. I remember when I was a teenager, I'm 37 just now, and I remember 22 years ago when I became a believer, I started getting to know some people, and they were also going for it with God. They also had the highway of Zion in their heart. I'm thinking back to people like Liam Smith, Gordon McIntosh, and David Henderson, when I think about all their lives just now, I know they've all gone through the Valley of Bacar. They've had some bitter, tough times. Dave Henderson, he's up in Huntley just now. He's paralyzed. He went there to, to start a church, and he was paralyzed. He can't move from his neck down. He just get a bit of movement in his arms. He's paralyzed. But he still started the church. But they've gone through the Valley of Bacar, some of them. But I have to tell you, God has showered all around them. Because of the highway of Zion that is in their souls, you know what I see around them is growing churches, marriages that have been rescued, miracles and healings, transformation in towns and cities. I'm serious. When you're carrying the highway of Zion, you become a means of blessing to your surroundings. You're not choosing an easy life, but God will use you to bring transformation. And when I, I think of the same in this church. I think of some of the people... Just, just to have picked up the highway of Zion. I think of Jane Gebby at the back there, living for the agenda of God. doesn't mean she hasn't gone through the valleys of Bacar, but God will shower on those around her. Same with Sammy and Pete and many of you. Vanessa, this year, you're, you're, you're making the highway of Zion. This is your agenda. You're going to Destiny College. This is about you stepping out and prioritizing what God prioritizes. It will result in God's pouring out blessing, not just on your life, and giving you an ability to get through those valleys of Bacar, but also it will give you blessing on those around you. And then it goes on and says, verse 8, O Lord of God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shields, O God. 
Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You see, you can have the tents of wickedness. Or you can have the house of God. But you can't have the both at the same time. You've got to pick a lane. You can go on the wide path in life. Or you can go in the narrow path in life. But you can't go on both. You can have one foot on two kayaks. But one of them's got a leak in it. So even though you can think you can do the two for a while, it won't be long before a decision is made by default. You'll be wet. Your choice. And here David or whoever the psalmist is says, do you know what? I want to be in the house of God. Question, what would you trade for a day in the house of the Lord? Is it that precious to you? Is it that precious to you? You would be not willing to trade much. When David, this is a king, let's assume it's David. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Now, who's David? What what job has David got? He's a king. So here's a king saying, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather have a lesser job and connect with God among God's people than dwell in the house of the wicked, the tents of the wicked, potentially with his luxuries and pleasures and all that stuff. You know, the weird thing is, here's a king saying, I would rather stop, I'd rather become a lesser position in life. I'd rather lose my kingship and be a doorkeeper, a steward in the house of God. And the ironic thing is this, that king said that, but some people, and I've seen them, is they get a better job and they stop connecting with God's people on Sunday. What? I mean, a king said he'd rather lose his kingly status, probably the best job you could get. I mean... How many people work as king? It's a pretty rare and good job. And he would rather lose that and be a doorkeeper in order to be with God's people in a worshiping environment, this thing we call church. And yet some people get a job like, not not as good as king, like something like they work for the council or something like that, and they never connect with God's people anymore because they see the job as more important. Just interesting. When someone's got the highway of Zion in the heart, there's a different set of priorities. And then it goes on and says this, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. No good thing to see with old. Now, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? No good thing to see with old. Because some of you have got good things in your mind and you're not sure if God's going to give you it. You're thinking, I don't know if I can, honestly, I don't know if I can really trust them. And as a pastor, I see people, they, it's almost like they can't trust God for the good things they would long for. So they go off and make it happen themselves. They can't trust God for that spouse. So they just go and, they go and get that girl or that guy. They make it happen. They, they can't trust God for that job. They don't, or they can't trust God for that turnaround. Or can you really trust God that no good thing with he, will he withhold? 
Remember, this is talking about people whose agenda is the highway of Zion. It's the house of God. It's the people of God. It's God's presence among God's people. This is their agenda. God says, no good thing that I will hold from you. Oswald Chambers said this, the root of sin is a suspicion that God is not good. I think that's a good quote. The root of sin is a suspicion that God is not good. So you don't think God is good and therefore you try and achieve the things that you should only be able to get from God by your own efforts. It's called idolatry. And then he says, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Following the Winter Olympics in 1988, there was a TV documentary about blind skiers. And the blind skiers, it's quite incredible what they did. They trained them on flat areas and they they, they skied with a, a seeing skier. And the seeing skier would give them instructions, left, right, hard left, gentle right. And they would learn to recognize these instructions. And then when they took them on the slopes, the seeing skier would, would ski alongside the blind skier. And it was quite incredible to watch them. And they would be going down this course and they would be weaving in and out of these slalom poles, but they were following carefully the instruction of the seeing skier. Now, literally, when they started on that slope, it was either they totally listened and trusted or they were going to hit catastrophe, right? There was no plan C. There was only A or B. Either they were not going to listen and they were going to crash or they were going to... And I think this is what it's talking about. It's blessed is the one who trusts in you. It's what it's talking about is blessed is the person who is not self-sufficient. It's not the person who's got it all sorted. You see, when you think, oh, as a blessed person, do you think of it as a person who has just got it all sorted? They're totally self-sufficient. They're, they've got everything in life in place. Well, according to the psalm, the blessed person is the person who's living with a dependence every moment on God. Now, sometimes it's an uncomfortable place to be. According to the Bible, that's a blessed place to be. So David here, he's 61 years old. He's had enough of running. He's, I mean, he's, he's gone through so many things in his life, and yet he's so secure in God. Here's a little excerpt from what David says while he was being chased by Absalom. 2 Samuel 15, 25. Listen to the security with which David speaks. If I find favor in the, eye, the Lord's eyes... He will bring me back and let me see his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. You think, there's not a guy who takes himself too seriously. There's not a guy who's scrabbling for position and fighting his way to the top. There's a guy who is deeply secure in God. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. So can you trust God for your spouse? Can you trust God for your position in life? Can you trust God for your job? Can you trust God for your health? Can you trust God for your visa? Trust Him. God's not against proactiveness. He's against self-sufficiency. Jeremiah 17, 7 to 8 says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Those whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its root by the stream. does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. 
So here's David, age 61. I think it's David. And he's in the run for his life from Absalom. And he's again trusting God. And he's again secure. He's not fretful. He's not emotionally all over the place. He's secure. Because agenda, his agenda never was him anyway. His agenda always had been to do the will of God. So he's at peace. Just as he, when he was a teenager, looking after those sheep up on the hillside, and the lion and the bear came to steal away one of those sheep, just as then, okay, I trust you, God. And he killed the lion and the bear. And then just as a year or so after that, as he stood in front of that mutant Goliath, and Goliath taunted him and cursed him, and David nutted him because David trusted in God. And then just as, just exactly the same trust that David applied when he was running for his life from King Saul and the armies. Imagine having an army pursuing you. You know, you know you've got enemies then. And David was in a place of trust. At every point in David's life, he has trusted God and God has vindicated because no good thing does God withhold from those who trust him. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this psalm. I realize, God, that some people are currently in the valley of Bacar. They're in a place of weeping and sorrow. They're heartbroken for, for the loss of something. They're heartbroken because of a situation they're facing. I feel especially there are people here, you're heartbroken because of loss. God wants to rain on you and bring freshness in this dry valley. So the challenges today is this. When you're in these times together, let your heart be for God. Don't focus on secondary things. Focus on Him. The challenge from the verses is let the highway of Zion be the highway that's in your heart. Let God's agenda be your agenda. And the great challenge here is, do you know what? We've got to trust in the Lord. Trust in Him for every area and every aspect of our lives. So just take a moment to pray back your response to God. Whatever's spoken to you today, just take a moment to talk to Him about that. Maybe there's some people here today and you've never really trusted God at all. How about today becoming a person, a blessed person, a person who from this day forward trusts in the Lord? When I talked earlier about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, for that to have any impact in your life, you've got to trust him. You've got to trust that what he did for you in the cross is sufficient to pay the price for all your sin and to bring you forever into eternity. You've got to trust that. Not trust yourself, not trust your own goodness. You've got to trust Jesus. So if that's you today, you're saying, Peter, I need to trust Jesus. I need to commit my life to him. I need to 
become a follower and a truster of God, then let me help you do that just now. Let me very simply lead you in a prayer. And I just invite you just to pray this prayer quietly under your breath, just between you and God. Just repeat after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. You died to take away my sin. And I realized that up until now, I haven't really trusted you. But I believe that you are trustworthy. And I believe you're risen from the dead. And today I trust you to be my savior. I trust you to bring me safely into your kingdom. I trust you with my life. Be my everything, God. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer. I want to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. In order to know who you are, just very simply, can you just raise your hand wherever you're sitting? If you prayed that prayer, thanks. Is anyone else? You prayed that prayer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is anyone else? Today you're saying, I'm putting my trust in you. Thank you. Okay, God, I pray for these precious individuals who in your presence today, they're saying that they're putting their trust in you. God, as, as they do that, thank you that you have heard their prayer. You've heard them. You've accepted them. God, we're in your presence just now. Let them know the incredible power and warmth of your acceptance in their life right now. Let this be the beginning of a whole new life for them, a life they live with God. Help them to plug into a church, whether it's this one or another one. Help them to plug into a church where they can grow in their faith and live the life and the calling that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.